You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us. I am Babak Abbasadeh, CEO of Toronto Centre. On March 11th, the WHO declared COVID-19 a pandemic, which triggered panic and a sudden shutdown of the world economy. Phrased well by The Economist magazine, immediately public authorities faced stark choices between life, death, and the economy. Many responded with lockdowns, extraordinary monetary and fiscal policies if they could afford it, unprecedented flexibility and supervision to help the financial system absorb the shock, remain sound, and keep providing crucial support to the real economy. We're now witnessing devastation coursing its way through Latin America and other developing countries, many of which do not have deep pockets. This crisis will have important implications for financial stability, financial inclusion, gender equality, and international development. All are important to Toronto Center's mission. Today, we sit down with senior accomplished leaders to hear their perspectives. The Honorable Sri Mulyani is Indonesia's finance minister, and Dr. Carmen Reinhardt Reinhard is the World Bank vice president and chief economist. We're also thrilled to have Dr. Susanna Moorhead, chair of OECD's Development Assistance Committee, as our senior moderator. You've received their bios. A big welcome to our panel and moderator. Please use the Q&A tab to submit your questions. A big thanks to our funders, Global Affairs Canada, Swedish CEDA, IMF, USAID, Jersey Overseas Aid, and Comic Relief. Also a big thank to our staff, uh, Demet Chanakcha and Diana Bird, who worked so hard to put this panel together. It is now my pleasure to hand over the session to Susanna. Go ahead, please. Abak, thank you. Thank you very much and a very warm welcome to all our participants. I see we, we've got 150 odd already and, and more joining as, as we speak. Um, and of course, a huge uh, welcome and thanks to, to my two panelists. Um, so Srimuliani, as Babak said, the Finance Minister of Indonesia and uh, Carmen Reinhardt, the, the recently appointed um, Vice President and Chief Economist of the World Bank. There is a, an invisible thread that joins us. Um, when I was the UK's Executive Director at the World Bank, Srimulani was there in Washington and now Carmen is. So I think um, it, it's a, I hope it's a virtual circle of, of good ideas to, that we can talk through um, this morning, this afternoon, this evening, depending where you, where you are in the world. Now I understand from Babak that this is actually the 13th such conversation um, that the Toronto Centre has had, and, and all of us, uh, whether we're working domestically or, or internationally, are having COVID conversations. Um, depending where you are in the world, some are still in the eye of the storm, managing the, the immediate consequences of the pandemic, and elsewhere, 
it is the, the, the economic uh, building back that, that people are focused on. One thing is for sure is that nothing is ever going to be quite the same. And secondly, that as ever in periods of, of crisis, it is the poorest countries in the world that suffer most. And within those countries, women and girls who suffer even more. So our, our topics today, which are wide ranging, which is great because it means we can, we can really get some ideas flowing. Uh, what are the implications for financial stability, financial inclusion, gender inequality and international development? So I don't know how long you've got, but I think we could spend several months probably on this one. But let's, um, let's try and, and focus in on, on you know, some really new ideas. Let, let's, let's think out of the box. And I, I would say that to participants as well. Uh, I don't think anyone has an answer yet. Uh, and I think this is a real inflection point um, in terms of global finance and international development to, to think differently and this, this now rather a cliche building back better. But what do we mean by that? What might better look like? And I think critically for this conversation, how on earth are we going to pay for it? Uh, so without further ado, as Babak said, you're, I'm not going to read out your illustrious um, uh, bios, but I think both of you are, are uniquely qualified um, to be able to uh, talk to these, these topics. Um, it's great to have all women, I'm going to be honest. <laughs> it doesn't very often happen. We're usually, um, you know, hugely outnumbered. Um, so let's, without further ado, uh, dive into the questions. Just for the audience, I think I will ask um, both Carmen and Srimuliani, a couple of questions. We'll have a little conversation, and then you need to use the um, <clears throat> Q&A function for questions. I'll, I'll warn you, I'm much more likely to select questions that are short and sharp and to the point, um, and that are interesting and, uh, and uh, provocative, if you like, but, but ones that are really going to, to stimulate the debate. Um, okay. So can I, can I turn first to, to Carmen? Um, huge congratulations on your appointment. Something of a baptism of fire, I should think. Um, and, and I understand you haven't actually managed to get to Washington yet, which is, is uh, not surprising, but we're all, um, we're all learning to, to work in different ways. Um, I mean, you, I know, have done a huge amount of research and work on, on the financial crisis in 2008. Um, which is actually when I just arrived at the World Bank, the 10 days before Lehman Brothers went down. So I remember how, how we dealt with it then. Uh, I mean, there are an awful lot of parallels being drawn. And my question to you is, I mean, are there any insights from the financial crisis or indeed from the Great Recession? Uh, and where, or where should we stop thinking that we can learn from history? The first question of how similar this is to 2008-2009 uh, is, as you might imagine, a very recurring one, given that that's the crisis most people still have fresh or relatively fresh in their minds. And the first thing I, I respond to that, because it has enormous bearing on the resolution and what we can learn or not learn, uh, is uh, unlike that crisis, 
this crisis has health origins, which also means that how quickly we overcome it to some degree is outside this, or to a large degree, is outside the sphere of economics. You know, that uh, if the pattern of global disease ends with the first wave, that is a very different scenario from one in which, like the influenza pandemic of 1918, which ended only in 1920, it goes through uh, more than one wave. Uh, so an, an important difference is, if you, if you will, there is no such thing as a run-of-the-mill financial crisis, but 2008-2009 was a more standard uh, financial crisis. Another important difference uh, is 2008-9, uh, early on in the fall of 2008 and early 2009, the fallout was indeed global, emerging markets got hit and so on, but the 2008-2009 crisis was a financial crisis in 11 advanced economies. And this is truly global. So indeed the parallels are more akin to, to, to the 30s. Um, in terms of learning as to uh, you know how quickly we can overcome it, I think um, recognizing problems early on, and now I'm talking about on the economic phase. Um, as I mentioned, unfortunately, until we know the path of the disease, it's hard to make any kind of prediction about the path of the economy. But I think. Um, a takeaway from 2008-2009 was that um, you need to uh, deal uh, with early recognition uh, of any kind of, you know, debt overhang. I'm referring now not so much to the government side, but also to the private side. Um, and I think we can uh, you know, early debt restructuring, you know, a lot of care as to how much the government takes on private debts from the banks um, uh, are maybe important lessons from 2008-2009. Uh, you know, uh, Ireland started out with debt to GDP of 20-some percent and ended up with debt over 100% because it took on all the bank debt. Uh, I hope we don't see that, get to see that. Uh, I hope there's lessons learned about how to also manage the financial stress and the financial fragilities that this crisis is creating. I don't think we hear, I'll conclude by saying that I don't think we hear about that right now because of course we have the more imminent concerns about whether the health crisis is over. We're still dealing with a reeling and, you know, crashing uh, indicators of economic activity. Um, so that's not in the forefront, but um, the uh, financial implications, the financial crisis type implications should not be neglected at this stage. Great, thank you very much. I mean, I think, I think we're all having to add zeros to um, all, 
all our normal indicators. Let, let, me, um, let me turn to uh, Minister Srimuliani. Um, you must have one of the most difficult jobs in the world at the moment, haven't you? I mean, I think, um, <laughs> you know, being, being a finance minister um, where there's so much pressure on you from all sides, such a, a huge responsibility to try and protect the enormous gains I know that you've made, particularly in terms of financial inclusion. Um, but also presumably your, your revenues um, declining. I mean, how, how does it feel? And what, what are your early thoughts about how to, to protect the, you know, the extraordinary progress actually that, that you've made, particularly for women in Indonesia? Well, thank you, uh, Susanna. The, this COVID-19 is really different from 2008-2009, as Carmen mentioned, because at that time I was finance minister also uh, during the 2008-2009 global financial crisis. Or even for Indonesia, we have 97-98, that is the ASEAN financial crisis, and Indonesia was crushed by that crisis with a very huge bailout of the banking system. What we are experiencing now is the crisis which hit hard directly to the people, not through the financial institution or corporation, but to the people. Because uh, as you mentioned earlier, this is about life and death. And also in terms of their social welfare and the economic, uh, both in terms of job uh, and uh, the security of the people. So it's much more complicated than the previous two crises in Indonesia. Even though we also have a very, very deep 97-98 uh, crisis because it then triggered the political, social upheaval and change uh, in, in the economy and as well as uh, government. This time, uh, what is at least make us a little bit more uh, safe because it is hit all the country. So we don't feel that we are really exclusively hit by a certain situation. That's one thing. But we also know that uh, immediately with this uh, COVID-19, from the public finance of you, it's really a huge burden. You immediately can see that the demand for all government spending increase because we need to protect from both the threat of this COVID, so the health spending immediately increased dramatically. The social safety net need to be increased dramatically because people losing the job, even the informal sector for Indonesia, which is usually as a cushion for many people who cannot work on the formal sector, they cannot even exist because we are restricting people movement. So definitely, virtually everything is just standstill and stop. And that's really a shock which has never happened before. Because even during the financial crisis, that is not really the case. People can still move. So the ec economic activity, especially on the informal sector happening. Uh, and the, in this, this time, you cannot do that. So everything is stop and uh, standstill. So, on the other hand, then we have to start thinking like two, three steps ahead. That is, the company is going to be non-perform in terms of their loan. Uh, 
banking sector definitely is going to have a hit hard by this non-performing and they have to do the restructuring immediately. So the government play a very critical role when uh, everything is actually stopped and they don't want to take any further risk, right? On the other hand, the revenue side, as Susan, Susanna mentioned earlier, is dropped. Our main figures on our government uh, revenue dropped by 10%. So we immediately can see that the deficit is going to increase. Indonesia actually have more than 15 years adopting fiscal discipline. We are not allowed to have deficit more than 3%. So during this very critical situation, we have to have an emergency law to actually opening this cap and allowing us to have a deficit, which originally my 2020 budget is actually designed to have a deficit only 1.76% of GDP. Primary balance is almost zero. So it's almost balanced. Now with this crisis only less than three months, our deficit is been ballooning to become 6.4% of GDP. That means like 46 billion dedicated spending only for COVID. Our total spending is almost 64 billion US dollar for the whole COVID related spending. And this increase our debt to GDP ratio, which is uh, uh, starting at 30% of GDP. Now we will expect that it's going to increase into 37 only within like this six months of this 2020, 6% of GDP increase. And also what is really critical, especially during March and May, Carmen knows maybe very well, the market was so panicked the global financial market. So basically, no one dared to enter the global bonds market. So when financing is becoming so volatile, market can really react in a more reasonable, rational way. Then the government really have to think about how you are going to deal with the widening deficit when the market is not open. If some country have like bilateral, multilateral, as Indonesia have this kind of uh, sources, World Bank provide us with additional resources, ADB provide us, AIIB provide us, uh, bilateral uh, country like Japan, Australia, uh, France, is even in this case, providing us with additional finance. So that is something which is at least pro provide a cushion, especially when market is so jittery. Then we can see that uh, luckily that the market is becoming more rational again. Of course, even with the same situation, same uh, or even worse, COVID, but market feel like they now understand the risk, which is I doubt that they really understand the risk. So, but at least now they are digesting this and now they are stuck uh, at least creating an opening. And for emerging country, and I can I believe for even more developing countries, they are much in a tougher situation. I think their access to finance is going to be very critical, very difficult during this time. For Indonesia, after the shock in March and April, we were able to enter the global market or even the, mass, the, the latest two weeks ago, we actually issued the Sukuk global bonds and we have the interest rate on the price which is the lowest in our history. It is because the global financial situation, the interest rate is a very low uh, level. 
but the low level interest rate in the advanced country is not actually immediately accessible for many countries in the world. So there is really, globally, the world is really facing with such a huge challenge. Fragmentation in the market, disparity in terms of access as well as price, and of course disruption in our own economy, whether this is coming from the health, then come to the social and economic shock because of this COVID. So Indonesia is responding very quickly, uh, luckily, because my own experience in 2008, 2009, at least I know the textbook about how we are going to adjust the budget. We have the emergency law, we widen the deficit, we secure the spending, especially for the health and social safety net. We also start immediately after that, thinking about restructuring of the debt, especially the companies, small, medium enterprises. This is mainly uh, the, the debtor uh, are women. So this is also for the financial inclusion and equality. I think that is also good. Most of them is actually women who own, who own less than uh, even 10 million rupiah in Indonesia. And that is exactly our focus. We've already put restructuring for six months and put them also additional subsidy for their interest rate. This is really try to provide a relief for informal sector or very micro, we call it ultra micro size of the company who actually own uh, through the banking system. We also have to deal with the non-bank uh, institution, which is actually providing quite a lot of uh, debt for especially motorcycle. You know, one of the difference from this crisis comparing to 2008 is that we have, luckily we have technology, Susanna. You know, a lot of transaction is already in an online digital. So the, the pandemic here in Indonesia, the center of the spread is Jakarta, who is more advanced on the technology. So, even though there is no contact, but the transactions still continue happening because many people shift into digital online transaction, which is actually accelerating the transformation of our economy into a more digital also. Abruptly, we also have to work from home. That's also changed the way we work very, very uh, dramatically. And it's happened like after almost four months working from home, the finance ministry is still functioning. So I always make a joke with my team that maybe we don't need those office anymore. The office building is becoming vacant for almost four months, but we're still functioning. So this will change dramatically a lot of things, Susanna, from health, education, the way we work, and transaction in economy. I think in a way that is going to be one of the silver lining and the blessing of this COVID. But I must say, as of now, it is still very hard, economically and, of course, from the public finance point of view. Thank you. Thank you very much. I mean, so I think what I'm hearing from both of you is that there are um, some lessons from history, but there's no blueprint. And, and I think there's a parallel on the health side. I mean, it, it's certainly true that those countries that had been through the SARS pandemic uh, were better prepared, um, but it's not the same. It didn't have quite the same uh, global reach. Um, you know, people talk a lot about uh, parallels with the Ebola 
uh, epidemic, which, which I mean, I worked on in, in West Africa. But I mean, that was a handful of countries with very tiny populations. So, you know, the, uh, the, the, the donor countries were able to throw everything at it. Um, so my next question to both of you really is I think the, because every country is affected and you know, everyone is having to use their fiscal headroom uh, to borrow, I mean, as you say, Srimuliani, I mean, levels that were against the law until very recently. I think I've seen a, a figure of $90 trillion um, is basically what, is, you know, what has been used to try and, and stimulate um, the developed world's economies. So, I mean, my question is this, the demand in emerging markets and particularly in the poorest countries for additional resources is going to be um, very, very significant. Uh, where is that money going to come from? Um, certainly in my, my little piece of it, uh, official development assistance, we are doing everything we can to, to strive to protect those budgets but everybody is under pressure. I know the World Bank um, has done a huge amount. Um, President Malpass has you know, pushed very hard on debt suspension, also front-loading IDA, um, seeing you know, how we can get resources into these economies. And Srimad Miliani, you, you mentioned various sources of finance. But, but my question to both of you is, you know, what can I mean, the World Bank in particular do and its shareholders, but also the international financial system more generally, to make sure that countries that are really going to struggle to access these financial resources are able to, to prevent, um, I think, a, a, a reversal on progress towards the sustainable development goals. Uh, I mean, we're looking at tens of millions of people falling back into poverty. We're looking at um, famine on a scale that I think we have not seen in the world since the 1980s. Um, we know this needs resource. Where, where might it come from if you, were, if, if you were thinking out of the box? How, how do you think we could do that? Uh, let me turn to Carmen first. Well, I think um, sort of going down the list of what the options are, um, the first line of defense, as you know, as you, you know, it's it been headline after headline in terms of the volume of lending by the IMF, uh, the World Bank, and the multilaterals. Uh, you know, the, the, the official community has tried to respond with the existing tools and with new facilities as well to facilitate, you know, as rapid and as uncomplicated a disbursement uh, to deal with the uh, emergency. So the, the first line is, of course, uh, you know, a variety of fast disbursement emergency financing. Um, adding to that, um, at the, uh, so, you know, in, at the, being promoted by the IMF and the World Bank, um, the G20 went ahead on the DSSI, the, the suspension, the temporary suspension from May 1st to the end of the year 
of debt servicing for the poorest economies. These are the IDA countries, 76 countries that are, I mean, that were, are eligible. Uh, more than half of them are participating to date. Not all of them have engaged. I will get to that. That is another temporary uh, form of uh, liquidity provision or resource uh, provision. Um, the uh, DSSI initiative is paired with also debt transparency, uh, um, a debt transparency conditionality, if you will. That's really about the only kind of conditionality that, and this is to assure that the uh, savings from debt servicing actually do go to uh, their intended uses in helping countries deal with the COVID emergency, be it in health, uh, be it in provision of services for the unemployed, being, you know, uh, providing a broader range of, of sustenance for the informal sector, whatever that, that, that is in the domain of the countries. But the important thing is that it doesn't go to debt servicing for another creditor that is not participating. And so far, on your broad question of where is the financing coming from, so far, there are two concerns on the debt suspension initiative. And one is how broad will China define it uh, so that you know, if it's narrowly defined, um, a lot of the loans, which is the lion's share of the loans that were made uh, by the Export-Import Bank, by the Development Bank, uh, to state-owned enterprises in many of the low-income countries, if those are not covered, then, you know, the debt, the saving from, from not servicing the debt to, to that country is much more limited. That's one concern. The other major concern is that, um, as you know, our president has been very vocal from get-go trying to encourage the private sector to participate in the standstill. And there, um, uh, you know, th there's been what I characterize as back paddling. Uh, you know, initially there were statements made that were somewhat encouraging about the prospects of having the private sector also in, in, involved in the standstill, but that has receded into the background and nothing has happened on that front. Now, on the straight, on the bigger question of, you know, what to expect, what, what, where, you, where do you get the financing when your financing needs are so large? Um, you know, I would note that, um, you know, Beyond the emergency measures that I've alluded to in terms of IMF lending and, and the multilateral lending, um, I think a real challenge as one looks over the longer haul is neither the IMF nor the World Bank nor any uh, development bank is a central bank. And so the capacity to do a Federal Reserve style or an ECB style, let's create a facility to buy debt or to provide support, you know, these, these institutions are resource constrained. They are capital constrained. So what makes those capital constraints 
you know, a bigger, you know, have a, a higher weight in the radar screen is that this shock is synchronous. You know, that it's not a couple of countries, you know, uh, the minister already referred to the Asian crisis of 97, 98, and that was indeed, you know, it, it, it so Korea, Thailand, Indonesia, and the Philippines all were, you know, engaged with the fund at that time, but it wasn't a global one. Uh, even, you know, the more widespread crisis of the 1980s, uh, which had its focal point in Latin America, wasn't as synchronous. Uh, and, you know, the crises in, 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 uh, in um, Africa, Asia, and the Middle East were not asynchronous. So capital constraints are looking forward in terms of challenges for emerging market finance. One challenge is, you know, the limitations of the official capacity. Another challenge, and this one worries me a great deal, the, the minister rightly alluded to it. During uh, March, we saw a, what can be best described as a really scary shutdown. Uh, you know, uh, emerging market finance, if you look at the Institute for International Finance capital flows, they collapsed. They did in a matter of four weeks what it had taken 56 weeks to do in 2008-2009. You saw uh, the volatility, the VIX in the United States plummet. Markets froze. Uh, and the point that I'm making is, you know, a lot of uh, market participants have taken heart and saying, look, uh, things have changed dramatically in the last couple of weeks, you know, in the last few weeks. Uh, there's, you know, a lot of, uh, not a lot, but a non-trivial amount of countries have been able to access capital markets again, and capital has reflown in. And so the panic phase seems to have, you know, subsided. Uh, but there are two things that really worry me, How, which is there is a disconnect between the finance side and what's happening in the real economy. Uh, I think the finance side is importantly driven by the fact that the Federal Reserve lowered interest rates to zero. There is a search for yield. Uh, you know, financial market participants are searching for yields in uh, part of that, that yield uh, comes importantly from emerging markets. And even as the fundamentals worsen, there's a willingness to lend. It is difficult to reconcile the fact that credit rating agency downgrades are at an all-time high. And that applies to downgrades and that it applies to downgrades and outlooks. They're at an all-time high. And it is hard to reconcile the fact that the economic fundamentals seem to be doing worse. Uh, and yet the, the financing terms have improved significantly. I'll conclude by saying that I think a challenge in terms of financing ahead is not to be lured too much by the temporary mood of capital markets. Because capital markets, as we had recent proof of, are extremely volatile, can turn on a dime. The, the vulnerability to a sudden stop in an environment in which 
fiscal finances and economic uh, conditions are as, as weak as they are because of the global situation. We haven't even brought up the issue that this isn't just as if COVID wasn't enough. This isn't just a COVID crisis. It's also been a commodity and oil crisis as well. We had the, the Russian-Saudi war, which impacted commodities. And so in that kind of environment, I think a real challenge is, is how to um, uh, limit or manage the exposure so that the vulnerability to a sudden reversal, to a sudden stop, is less. I want less. to bring Srimulan in, if I can. So look, there's a, there's a huge amount there. I mean, I, I, and I'm not sure where to start. I mean, I think this point that what's happening in the financial markets, as opposed to what's happening in the real economy, is something we're only just beginning to think about. And, and you know, what the implications are going to be for people losing their jobs, in huge numbers for people modifying their behavior. I mean, as Shumriyani said, you know, a lot of people may not um, want to go to the office anymore. Uh, what about global travel for business or indeed for pleasure? Um, so, you know, it's, it's how this will change the way that we are as economic actors. Um, and then going back down to how do we finance it? I mean, one question um, that I hope will come up in, in the Q&A is, you know, should we, as shareholders of the development banks, be thinking about another recapitalization, but doing it, um, you know, on the understanding that the balance sheet has to be worked far, far harder than it has been and actually recalibrate our, our risk appetite a little bit. Let me, I'm going to um, ask Shrimliani for a few comments, and then I'm going to open it up to the audience. So please um, send your questions in. If, if, it's, uh, if your question is specifically for one of the panelists, please, please indicate that. But Shrimliani, let me hand over to you. Any well, Susanna, <laughs> okay. Okay, should I start? Okay. Uh, when... We talk about the source of financing, where we are going to get the finance. I mean, it really depends from country to country. The country who got the uh, financing uh, access, which is more, much more established, whether your bonds market uh, domestically also deep enough, then I think at least you still have this source of financing. Many emerging countries, they are still in the very early stage of actually uh, this experiencing uh, access of uh, global bonds as well as their own domestic bonds market is still not well developed. Not to mention for many low-income countries which is still not uh, thing have the ability and capacity to issue the global market. So they, for those who really depend on bilateral, multilateral support, then they go to the private sector, usually the consortium of the commercial bank and they can have a very, very high price, high interest rate, which is disconnect with what is actually happening globally. For those who already have the access, then they are facing uh, uh, what Carmen mentioned, and I mentioned earlier, that is the unpredictability of the market during the most important time Then they really need those financing. So you really have to find the right balance. For a country, for Indonesia, even in this case, we really have to deepen our domestic market. 
but even on a domestic market that is local currency, the participation of foreign buyer is still quite significant. And when you are having this sudden stop or capital outflow immediately, just like what happened last March, like within only one week, we have 124 trillion. This is almost like 0.9% of our GDP, which is I think huge for a country to have that shock. That's scary as uh, Carmen mentioned. It's really scary because we don't know how long this is going to happen, right? So really deepening your own market and relying on your own local currency is very critical. For Indonesia, when uh, we designed this uh, deficit uh, increase very dramatically to above 6%, we look the first financing source is our own. That is, we have some what we call it sovereign fund for education. So we use all those long-term uh, financing uh, sources which is existed in Indonesia to become our first lender of last resort. Second, we use our own domestic uh, uh, bond market, local currency, and we also relaxing very critically at this moment, the ability of the central bank to buy, to participate in the primary market, which has never happened in Indonesia. And Indonesia is actually very anti to those kind of practice because we have the central bank totally independent. They only taking care of inflation and stability on the exchange rate. Now they really have to carry the same burden with the government by allowing them to participate in the bonds market and the primary market by as a standby buyer. So that at least gives the certainty that this deficit can be financed. Of course, we have to be very careful with the inflation and exchange rate. But as of now, this is not really the focus because we really focus on the contraction or depression or recession that we are now seeing as the real threat for the economy. Then, as I said, the role of the multilateral, bilateral is very critical. As Carmen mentioned, I really appreciate that all multilateral institutions, World Bank, ADB, AIIB, even Islamic Development Bank, they are all overing me. What can I do with the fast disperse loan related to the COVID uh, handling that is on a health? So we really design very quickly and then they then fast dispersing and that really create two benefit for us, not only financing, but also to calm down the market, especially exchange rate, because they see that the reserve of the central bank is increased with our disbursement from this multilateral. So they see that, oh, it's not depleted and it's okay because there is nothing wrong with our economy to begin with, right? It is just a shock and then suddenly you really have to restore uh, what you call it, uh, the, the trust and the confidence again. And, and that's why you mentioned, Susanna, whether it is time for this multilateral institution to increase the capital again. I think World Bank has already have the capital increase just recently. For Indonesia, we haven't like used all this, the, the space that is allowed for us to access the World Bank, which is good. But we also know that maybe that's not the case for other. The capacity of the multilateral institution, as I mentioned, is always very important when we are facing with the market, which is so volatile and not rational in terms of their behavior. This has happened in 2008, 
when many countries like Indonesia is actually we are okay, our fundamental is good, and then suddenly there is a Lehman Brothers case, and then the behavior is totally irrational or erratic in this case. At that very moment, you need to have like a stopgap who rationalizing again the market through this kind of mechanism of multilateral institution who's there to provide us with the standby financing during this very critical time. So this complementing, especially when market is not reliable in terms of their behavior. And we know that in many episodes of the crisis, it's always the case. And then, of course, in the long run, as Carmen mentioned, I mean, we really don't know what is going to happen in the world. First, in terms of the trajectory of the recovery of this economy. Because this is not just like one shock. You just uh, putting the balance sheet into a better shape again, and then you are going to recover. Even if you restructure and your balance sheet is okay now, under this restructuring, you are facing with the situation of the economy in which people don't want to travel. They are not going to the shopping mall. They are not going to the movie. They are not going to the restaurant. So we really don't know how people is going to feel safe that they are going to then behave in a normal way that then can generate the economic activity. This is what is the most uncertain is actually that kind of change behavior. And until the vaccine is invented or it's going to be like easily accessed, then we are going to face with this situation. So we don't know how long. And that is creating the very difficult uh, part of rest rest restarting the economy. It's really like you really start opening up, but people are still very cautious in this kind of situation. So with that, then the question is then, then you really have to have, you are playing a long game. This is not like one short shock and then we are going to be recovered. This is going to be like shock with you and stay with you until quite some time. So if we learn from 2000, uh, 1918 Spanish flu, that is two years as Carmen mentioned. That means, are you going to be able to withstand these two years? In Indonesia case, when we designed the emergency law that is putting uh, uh, this limit, uh, eliminating the limit of our deficit, when I presented in the cabinet, I said, we give three years for Indonesia to allow to have deficit above 3%. And then after three years, we are going to the fiscal discipline again, going back to the 3% cap again. But this is really, when people ask me, how do you know it's gonna be three years? I don't know, but maybe we're thinking at that time, this is maybe adequate. And within these three years, we really have to make sure that you are going to be able to build the right foundation for this recovery to happen. Bear in mind, when now the deficit in Indonesia is 6.3, that means next year we have to be able to have a deficit which is lower than that, so that the tapering of this deficit is not going to create additional shock to the recovery of the economy. So it's really like balancing between the fiscal design, monetary now policy, which is central bank allowing to finance this deficit to some extent without jeopardizing the market uh, discipline and reputation of our macro policy credibility. These are all the set of policy that we try to do in which you are responding to the immediate situation without jeopardizing the hard-earned reputation of macro stability and reputation 
and the market continue functioning. And that, that is exactly what, what, what I see as the most important. During this very difficult time, the role of the IMF, World Bank, and multilateral institution is going to be very critical because they can support us when we really need it, when there is no else source of financing that we feel that it is justify that kind of financing. If we go to the market with such a very high price, it will not justify in terms of should you really spend the money for this kind of urgency or emergency. So this kind of situation that I think the design of the multilateral institution with all the instrument and the policy should be really, really put in the context of global public goods or global public bad, like this kind of COVID or climate change, that will definitely require a certain mechanism, instrument and institution, global institution, who's allowing us to complement first the market discipline instrument, but they're not always reliable with this kind of continuity because managing economy and country, you cannot say like, okay, we are going to take six month holiday. That is not the case. The country should go on, should continue, no matter what, no matter how the volatile of the economy and the, the, the market. But we try to avoid those punishing behavior of the market as much as possible. And I think within that context, some policy uh, uh, warranted to be adopted. Sometimes you really have the market, uh, when market is not reliable, the government intervention and control justify. But it's not going to be and not supposed to be substituting the market in the long run. So it's supposed to be like a temporary credible intervention. But then you have to then step back when the situation is getting back to the normal. I think that kind of flexibility by the market and by the government is really needed. But that's require a legislation and institutional arrangement within each country to be able to do and conduct those kind of on and off and temporary as well as then you are withdrawing in a such a way that is allowing uh, this uh, development process to continue in one country without uh, the disruption coming from this kind of shock. Thank you, thank you. So I do want to open it up to um, our audience now. There's a, a huge amount there and I come back to what I said at the beginning, Sri uh, Mulyani, you have got one of the most difficult jobs in the world because all of that is without being able to factor in how this is going to change the way people behave. And I think what it's going to do to labor markets. I mean, I think there are huge numbers of jobs that will disappear and we're going to have to invent new ones. So Carmen, in that spirit, there is a question that um, wants to know what shape the recovery is going to be on the basis of, of the information we have so far. Now, I know there's, you know there's been a lot of talk, is it a V, is it an L, is it a W, is it a U? If you could answer that, but also to talk a little bit about opportunities, particularly for women. I mean, I was very struck uh, by what Srimuliani was saying is, you know, the, the, the digitalization uh, uh, revolution has been accelerated. Because I think when we're, when we're looking at the recovery, whatever shape it is, we do need to make sure that we are taking as much advantage of this crisis as possible. What, what do you think? I think there is a general tendency to confuse rebound with recovery. 
and I'll be specific on what I mean. Rebound after you have growth collapses, like what we're registering in the first half of this year. Uh, you're gonna have something, a rebound on growth that looks, oh, that looks great, it looks like a V. But that is actually misleading because if you were to look at the level of per capita income, it will take some years to get back to the pre-crisis level. In most cases, it varies across countries, obviously. But if you look at the level of per capita income, you don't get this superficial looking V-shaped recovery. So answer, uh, I think abstracting, and again, I highlighted that one of the things that makes this situation particularly worrisome from the economic standpoint, it's, it's encompassing uncertainty because you don't know how long it's gonna last. You don't know if the second wave is worse than the first, which was the case in the 1918 pandemic. Uh, you, you just don't, it's uh, in some sense, uh, the disease is just in the driver's seat uh, until there is a, a, a vaccine. And so it, the best case scenario uh, in my view, still involves a U. You are going to see things that snap back and you say, aha, that's a V. No. In most cases, the unemployment will take a while to, to settle back to pre-crisis. The per capita GDP will take a while. Uh, what is very troubling about the gender issue, like the poverty issue, is that this crisis is very, very regressive. It has, it's having its greatest impact on the low income. Many women in many societies are clustered in that low income. Uh, so that's one dimension that I think the, the fact that it is, it, it's a very unequal, uh, at the end of this, we're going to have a, ma a major setback to the gains in equality, you know, more the, the, the in distribution that we had seen over the gradually, very gradually over the last couple of decades. Another dimension where I am concerned about the setback for, for women and girls is, um, and you hear this narrative from, from uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, certainly, and we saw a glimpse of it, you alluded to the Ebola pandemic. Um, you know, children are being pulled out of school because of the pandemic. Not, a, not all those children's return to school and the incidence of returning is, appears to be much lower for girls than for boys. And we saw this in, 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 in during the Ebola pandemic. Uh, yet another factor that is a source uh, of concern is uh, a lot of the gains in, in financial inclusion for women also came from very micro-driven 
initiatives in terms of microfinance. Uh, I think for a while we're going to be seeing a credit crunch. Even, you know, I, and, and, and look, I think governments and central banks are doing very much what they can, but, uh, and the minister was, was, was alluding to this, there is also risk aversion, you know, that uh, the, the um, aversion to making, you know, some of those riskier loans is something that we see again and again during crisis times, you know, so that the, the, those are real sources of setbacks and concerns for uh, women in the post-COVID era. Thank you. Can I, that is a perfect segue. So there, I've got loads and loads of questions, um, which is, I mean, you know, what is the policy response to this regressive crisis? And Shumuliani, I mean, with all your experience of financial inclusion and reaching, you know, particularly the poorest women, what, what can government do? Because I, I, I think Carmen's right. I mean, all the progress that we've made on girls' education, on later marriage, one thing or another, risks being reversed. And forget that overlain on all of this is a domestic violence spike as well, which is really um, going, going through the roof. So we know this, we see it happening. Um, we know women and girls are gonna be hardest hit. We have a, an enormous array of policies and programs. What do we do to, to, to push this to the top of the agenda? And my guess is that the answer will have as much to do with politics as economics. Yeah, well, as I said, I think, but for many politicians, they also realize that this COVID hit directly to the people. So in terms of their uh, asking for the government or support uh, for the government, for the political party to support government to do an extra uh, ordinary intervention, I think more or less relatively there. So we are not having a constraint uh, in terms of the urgency and the demand for us to actually uh, intervene or uh, designing a policy. The, the challenge is more how in this very uh, short and emergency situation you are going to be able to design the good policy. That is always like the trade-off between the speed and the fast response with your ability. And especially when the country doesn't have what you call it, the necessary condition of, for example, like the system in place for the health, for the education, for the social safety net. For example, like in, for in, in Indonesia, do you have the by name and address of the poor people in Indonesia? We have the 40% bottom by name by address. This is 29 million household. But they are not updated up to the recent situation, especially when they are hit by the COVID, there will be like new poor, which is not going to be included in this database. So when you are expanding your social safety net, I mean, when, there's, when I said earlier, the technology helping a lot because you can easily digitize and you are actually transferring through the bank. Indonesia is an archipelago country. 
we still have a remote area. Luckily, the COVID is actually, maybe it's not, the word luckily is not appropriate, but the COVID hit mostly in a city, big city like capital city of Jakarta. So in this case, the social safety net can be done through our transfer directly through the payment system, digital. And the role of fintechs in Indonesia has been increased very dramatically. So that is all the case in which you, you have this technology and the system that is allowing you to respond. But when you talk about targeting, you maybe still have the inclusion exclusion error because of first updating of the data and well, and then also the COVID creating a new pore, which is not captured in the existing database. So that is one thing which is the challenge. And the second one is, of course, for, for us to actually try to find, even if you are not in the ideal case, what else you can do in order for you to reach especially the most vulnerable, the poor and the most vulnerable. For Indonesia, we find that uh, providing subsidy or even electricity bill for the lowest household is the most effective one. This is the, the one more than 724 million household who actually register on the electricity bill at the lowest level. That they actually only have 450 VA per month, the capacity. This, we put them totally free electricity for six months. That's helped them a lot. So we try to find how and what is the best way to reach the bottom 20% or bottom 40%, knowing that maybe it's not uh, 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 what you got perfect, but at least we, we try to cover from many different forms. In addition to that, we also converted some of the existing policy. For example, we have what we call it village fund transfer to each village in Indonesia. We have 75,000 villages in Indonesia. So we said that one third of this village fund should be converted to become social safety net. So direct subsidy to the poorest hard hit. This is because for Indonesia, those who are unemployed usually go back to their village. They, they work temporarily in a city and when the city closed lockdown, then they go back to their village. And that's why we provide safety net on a village level. So what I'm saying is that we try to use all the policy and instrument available that is allowing us to respond in a very short time. And that is very, very critical uh, to do that. So I think th that's what the country needed. Uh, ideally, and that's why, as I said earlier, this crisis trigger the need for reform. And that's why we said that we should not waste this crisis. We use this to trigger the reform in the health sector, in education, social safety net, including the accuracy of the data and how we are going to prepare. In terms of the recovery, as Carmen mentioned, and I also mentioned earlier, because of this uncertainty, what we should do is just preparing for a longer period of uncertainty. 
Carmen mentioned about the risk averse, and that's exactly what is happening. Like this time to jumpstart again, how the bank after they restructure the loan and the company or the corporation or even small medium enterprises after they are restructured, they both don't want to restore the working capital again. They just want to wait until all the restructuring process finish. And that mean can be six months, eight, nine months, one year. So you can imagine, Susanna, that if you wait for six to 12 months, meaning that the economy is just like going down. There is no credit. Now, if I ask, what is going to be the credit growth? We used to have like 12% per, per year, down to nine. Now, what I heard is only three or 4%. That's lucky enough that you still have the positive growth of a credit. And that is maybe on the area which is related to the health activity and food and beverages, which is still actually moving. But other, I think they just stop. So now the government is trying to do introducing what you call it risk uh, management or uh, insurance for the new working capital loan so that the bank feels safe to lend again and the company they are going to like feel protected because the government will pay them the insurance of the first loss of their working capital so we put budget dedicated for this kind of insurance for the new working capital because we don't want them to like just stop only on the restructuring on the woman i think this is very important for 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 us because as carmen also mentioned the COVID really hit hard especially the poorest and the woman and you mentioned about domestic violence we also heard from the ministry of women affair this case is actually escalating when people are only at home and especially for many poor area that they are in the poor housing then the domestic violence is going to be one of the biggest uh, uh, challenge uh, that we have to face at least from the economic point of view what we try to do is try to help as i said earlier the government immediately during this situation dedicate the restructuring and support for the uh, ultra micro credit, which is 80% the borrower are women. We have more than 8.2 million women borrowing. And they actually, the one who do the very basic activity, economic activity, we said to them that you, are, you don't have to pay your principal or even in this case, all the interest rate will be like, uh, paid by the government. We still thinking at this moment, should we help more by providing additional capital to them? Because they are the one who actually still maintaining maybe a certain basic transaction among people, whether this is in the village, rural area, or uh, among the informal sector, we just now start moving again. So we are continue improving our policy. We will look at where the area that we actually can do more to help, uh, especially uh, the most vulnerable, that is the people, uh, the poor people, as well as the women. Thank you very much. I mean, what, what I take away from this is, you know, there are so many systems that were put in place for other things. I mean, social safety nets or digitization. And actually, the key is to use those existing systems in innovative, flexible ways. 
in order to, to get a, a quick response out there. And that, um, you know, there's a huge amount being tried, tested, probably something's going wrong. And, and we need to make sure that we're sharing these lessons in, in real time, because everybody, I think, is struggling with this, you know, very complex uh, and challenging um, time. Um, so I'm going to have to draw this to a close uh, very soon because I know everybody has a day or an evening. Um, I'd, one last quick question for both of you. What, um, and let me start with Carmen. I mean, what's the single most important lesson you've learned from, from this crisis? In two minutes or one minute. I think that uh, neglected uh neglected problems always come back to haunt you and i think one area where the world at large advanced emerging and it, it, the idea of preparation for a global pandemic was something that had gone out uh and so i think a legacy of this is is going to be uh you know, a focus on resilience uh, and resilience on the really core uh, health and food that uh, perhaps I think got, got waylaid uh, along the way. Thank you. Thank you. What about you, Srimaliani? I think when the sun shines, you have to fix your roof. Uh, so basically, you really do the counter-cyclical. When situation is actually happy, everybody partying, this is the real work for you to, uh, to strengthen your fundamentals so that you are always sure that when the next crisis happens, you have the buffer, you have the space, and you have the capacity to deal with. I mean, that's happened in the fiscal side, monetary side, on the social safety net, in many other areas. So basically, don't waste when a situation is good. That means you have to work harder. So that when situation is not good, then you also have to work harder. But at least you are starting in a much better situation. Thank you. Thank you both very much. So if I may take your two lessons and combine them, I think it is um, put solar panels on your roof and don't think that climate change is not coming down the track very, very fast. We haven't talked about that at all, maybe another time. Um, this has been a, a hugely stimulating conversation, um, such rich experience on both sides. And I think, you know, seeing uh, Srimuliani with your to-do list um, on the one hand, and then Carmen trying to, trying to get the, the bank to be as helpful as possible has given our, our 200 plus participants a lot of insights into, I mean, how difficult this is, but also just how hard people like you are working to try and come up with innovative, creative solutions, and especially for women and girls. And great to, to see you both. Thank you very much indeed. And thank you to our participants. Let's, uh, let's close it there. Enjoy thank the you. evening or morning, depending. Thank you. Good morning to all Bye, of you. Everybody. Thank you, Carmen. Thank you, Susanna. Bye.